Uh, Mark opened himself up to me. It's not very often. He's not a very vulnerable guy. But he shared with me uh, some of his own weaknesses and struggles and the difficulties at faith. And he revealed to me that recently he had preached on John 21. And in that sermon, as he was preaching, you know that Mark, uh, like me, we don't use manuscripts. We are open to uh, the prompting of the Spirit. And as he was preaching through John 21, it just struck him as he was thinking about Peter. He said to himself, we need a strong man in the pulpit. And then he said to himself, we need strong preaching. We need a strong man with strong preaching. And uh, so I said, Mark, no problem. I can accommodate you. I can do this for you. We're brothers. I love you. You're a dear friend. I can do this for you. And then this afternoon, the strong man fell asleep. (laughs) And then he had to race here and violate every speeding uh, law known to man, which, of course, if you know anything about me, I'm a rule follower, so that uh, it was very painful uh, to have to do that. But for Mark's sake, I would do anything for that man. So here, here we are. Our text this evening comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11, hear now God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our merciful Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we would see, open our ears that we would hear, and soften our hearts that we would believe. Be merciful to us by the grace of your Spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the passage before us this evening, and I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we work through it, but this passage is uh, a very helpful passage for our day. Um, there is much confusion in the church today regarding the relationship between Israel and the church, uh, and I, uh, I know that under the strong teaching of Mark, you probably don't have 
these uh, problems, these issues uh, with these, uh, this dispensational and premillennial uh, weirdness that God has two plans, a uh, plan uh, for Israel and a plan for the church, and that at some time, uh, this time began in 1948, that sometime in the future the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and even uh, the sacrificial system will somehow be reinstituted as a sacramental system of some sort. Uh, it's also very important because the church today flounders in her understanding of the covenant. What is the covenant? With whom is the covenant made? And of course, the covenant is the relationship of love that God establishes with his people and their children. It also helps us understand, uh, it sorts through some of the sacramental questions that plague the Reformed world today. So let's just jump in uh, and see what the Lord has in store for us this evening. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers... And there we need to stop. Who are these fathers? Who are the fathers that Paul has in mind? And, of course, the simple answer is Israel. And uh, the question, of course, is, well, who was Israel and how did God establish Israel? And do we even have descendants of Israel today? And it's interesting when you think about uh, the covenant with Abraham and the, uh, the establishment of circumcision, that the covenant was always based, or God's relationship with Israel, the establishment of Israel was always based on promise and not by bloodlines. Uh, if you paid attention this evening to the Genesis 17 passage, you will know that it was not only Abraham who was circumcised, who was circumcised along with him. Anyone? Don't be shy. This is Ishmael's circumcised. Who else? Who's the son of promise? Okay, and who else? His whole household. Now, does his whole household have blood relation with him? Is this his biological progeny? Now, and if you go back a few chapters um, to Genesis 14, you will remember that when Abraham delivers Lot, we read of uh, the, the massive size of Abraham's house. It's a ginormous household, and scholars believe that he probably had anywhere between 3,000 to 5,000 people within his household. For you will remember that when he delivered Lot, he delivered Lot with an army of how many trained men? 318, right? Genesis 14, verse 14. And so when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, uh, you could say that Abraham and his blood and his biological descendants, they're in the minority, Right? So the, the covenant that God establishes with Israel was never primarily based on blood. It was based on God's promise. And we see this further developed uh, when Israel comes out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's the passage that stands behind uh, 1 Corinthians 10. But when Israel comes out of Egypt, who joins them? 
Anyone remember in Exodus 12? A mixed multitude. And as Mark has uh, probably taught you, uh, the mixed multitude was what group of people? Are these the Afghanis, Canadians, the Scots, the Irish? Where are they? In Egypt, right? So these are probably Egyptians, uh, perhaps other slaves, but there is a huge number, a mixed multitude, not a small number that comes with Israel out of Egypt, and they are incorporated into the people of God, and they become Israel. Uh, And we know this, uh, that in the Old Testament, a Gentile could become a Jew. A Gentile could be incorporated into the people of Israel. And we even know that Jesus was a Jew, right? Yeah? Yeah, Jesus is a Jew, yeah? Uh, and in his genealogy, he has some weird uh, bloodline, right? Who's one woman that's brought into Rahab? Ruth. Right? So one of the things that we need to understand even today uh, as we think about uh, some of the issues in our world and uh, the role of Israel, the place of Israel, is that, that the covenant was never based primarily on blood, but on promise. So Paul says our fathers, the family of Abraham, the children of promise, Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we know, uh, we'll stop right there, that all of us, that here, all means all. All doesn't simply mean the fathers. All means the fathers and mothers. And all doesn't simply mean fathers and mothers. All means the fathers, the mothers, the children, uh, the nursing infants. All the people of Israel that left Egypt, that crossed the sea, on dry land, all of them, those are the fathers, they passed on dry land and all were baptized into Moses. I also hear a rumor that your associate pastor was once a Baptist and at one time in his life he thought the word bapt, to baptize, the verb baptize meant to dunk. It's very interesting here that here is the proof text that baptizo cannot mean to dunk. Think about this. All were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. Now, think about this. How did Israel cross the Red Sea? Were they the ones dunked in the water? No, they were the ones who walked on dry land. And if you want to talk about dunking, who was dunked? The Egyptians. And it was not a dunking unto salvation. It was a dunking unto damnation. It was God's judgment upon them. They were baptized into Moses. And this means uh, here, right, baptism, the, uh, the, the, the actual Uh, the real meaning of the word is to be incorporated into, right? They were incorporated into Moses. They identified with Moses. Moses was their covenant head. What Moses did, they did in virtue of their union with Moses. Moses went before them on dry land and they followed on dry land. 
They were baptized into him, a dry baptism, if you will, unto salvation. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And this, of course, is now referring to their, uh, their, after they've crossed the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness. And how does God feed Israel in the wilderness? Right? Something from heaven. What drops out of the heavens? Manna, the bread of life, the bread of heaven. And so all of those who went through the sea, um, the fathers, the mothers, and their children who, uh, who were baptized into Moses, they all ate the same spiritual food in the wilderness. That is to say that they were nourished by the manna that God provided for them every morning. And we read of that in Acts or not Acts, in Exodus chapter 16. And, and Paul goes on to say that they all ate the same spirit, uh, that they all drank the same spiritual drink. Exodus 17. So God provides them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. They all eat that bread. This is God sustaining for them. And they drink the water that comes from the rock. And then Paul goes on to say, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Did you know that Christ was active, that he had an active ministry in the Old Testament? Right, sometimes we think that the Old Testament is the book of the work of God the Father, or sometimes we've been told that. But in the Old Testament, Christ is at work in his pre-incarnate form. Um, sometimes you might hear this word theophany, these appearances of God in the Old Testament. I'm convinced that all of the theophanies in the Old Testament are actually Christophanies, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. And it was Christ who led Israel through the wilderness. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, that guarded them, that protected them. Christ was there in his pre-incarnate form, uh, looking after his people, the people that he delivered. The angel of death is probably also a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Christ who slaughters the firstborn son, the sons of the Egyptians. He's the one who gives them victory. He's the one who brings them through the Red Sea. And he's the one who brings them uh, through the wilderness and into the land of promise. This is undoubtedly the ministry of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing. God does all of this, right? All of Israel is baptized. Oh, by the way, this is a great uh, proof text for infant baptism, isn't it? And sometimes we Reformed people think that the proof texts are the circumcision texts. Uh, but here, we actually have an explicit reference to baptism that would have involved the infants. They were baptized into Moses as they passed through the sea on 
dry land. So we have all of this history. Paul is recounting uh, Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, pre-incarnate Christ's uh, work in uh, the wilderness experience, and then he gets to that sermonic point, which is, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, we need to just stop there and think about this. With whom was God not pleased? Was it with the little children? Or was it with the adults? Which generation had to die in the wilderness? Was it the older generation or the younger generation? It was the older generation, and it was the younger generation that got to enter the land of promise. And then Paul goes on to explain the various sins committed by that older generation. Now these things, he says, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they do. You see, brothers and sisters, Israel is our family. This is our family history. The church is the fulfillment of Israel. And all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the fathers, those promises, of course, find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, and then in Christ and through Christ to us, the church. And Paul says, you are to learn how not to behave, what not to do, from their example. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And notice he goes on to say, we must not do this as they did. We must not do that as they did. And verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Right? Another uh, indication that Christ was at work in the Old Testament. They put Christ to the test. And Paul says, learn from their example. Don't be like them. Don't do that. It's interesting, again, speaking of covenant and apostasy, there's uh, a distinctly average theologian who just wrote a book on apostasy. Um, and one of the things that you need to understand about apostasy, right, is that, that God gives us gift after gift after gift after gift. And yet we walk away. I mean, think about this. Was it not a gift for Israel to be baptized into, the, into Moses to cross the Red Sea and dry land? Was that not God's grace to them? Was it not a grace that God provided bread from heaven, manna, 
every day? Was it not a grace that God gave them water? Why would they complain? Why would they turn away? This is a great mystery. I mean, think about our first father, Adam. Did, did Adam lack anything in the garden? No, he had everything. He had no reason to complain. He had no reason to disobey. He had no reason to spit in the face of God. And yet he did. And Paul says to us, he says, look, you have received every good gift in Christ Jesus. Have you not been baptized? Do you not partake of the Holy Supper? Do you not receive faithful preaching, strong preaching, week after week? What's wrong with you then? That you would turn away. That you would turn your back upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved you, the one who purchased you with his own precious blood. Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. A reference to the golden calf incident. Do you ever, I, I sometimes do this, I wonder if you do this, right? You, 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 you recount the history of Israel, or you think now in this case of the, the golden calf, and you just say, like, those people are so dumb, so stupid. I thank God that I'm not like that. You ever think that? We do it, don't we? We think that we are better than them. And better than other believers. You say, yeah, I, I understand how Brother Bob fell into that sin, that particular sin, because he's, you know, he's a little weak. That would never happen to me because I'm strong. But if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you know that the strongest fall and often fall grievously. David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery. He murders Uriah. He falls grievously. And apart from the grace of God, he would have remained there. Praise God for the mercies of God. Praise God for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our history. This is our family. And we are to learn from it. One of the important lessons here, it seems to me, is this. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. 
I've been a Christian my whole life. And sometimes I, I think to myself in my sin, in my pride, I think, you know what? I've got it. I figured out the, the Christian walk. I understand what it's all about. I know what I need to do. And I think to myself, you know what? I actually do not need as much grace today as I did 10 years ago. Because I've got it figured out. I, I, I know how to walk. I mean, I'm, now I'm able to run. I've come a long way by God's grace. And because I've come a long way by God's grace, I actually do not need as much grace today as I did five years ago. And that's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for apostasy. Because I stand in need of as much grace today as the day I first believed. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. What guarantees a good finish? To do the same thing that you did when you first believed. To entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. To entrust yourself to the mercies of God. To understand and to believe that you have no strength in yourself. And to believe that Christ and Christ alone is your sufficiency. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And what Paul is getting at here, of course, is that, that with, the, with the coming of Christ, all these promises that were made to our fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have come uh, uh, to, to fruition. And, and we now have more privileges than they ever had. So God expects so much more of us. You know, there's this lie in the contemporary church, right, that in the Old Testament, God was a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God of anger, and in the New Testament, uh, God is a God of love and a God of acceptance and a God of inclusiveness and all of that. And when you read the, the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says over and over and over again, if they received a just judgment how much more will we be judged if we trample upon the blood of the covenant? Because we have been given so much. Christ has come and He has given us the Spirit and by the Spirit we are able to live the life of faith that Israel was not able to do. Remember these things, brothers and sisters. Remember that these things happened for your instruction. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen. Let's stand together and turn in our hymnals to number 5.